Hello, and welcome to Talking and Show, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hey, Tamar. Hi, Mimi. And Zahava Stadler in northern New Jersey. Hey, you know, it's occurred to me that Tamar doesn't ever say that she's in Philadelphia. Oh, right. That's <laughs> South true. Philadelphia, Center City. <laughs> I mean, it really depends who you ask. I'm in Philadelphia. Um, uh, hi, everybody. I'm excited to talk to you today. Um, I'm excited because we have some really great topics. We are going to talk about a now infamous op-ed in the Washington Post, I Am Tired of Being a Jewish Man's Rebellion by Carrie Purcell and the resulting backlash. And for our second segment, we're talking about the new film Disobedience, which is based on a novel by Naomi Alderman and stars Rachel Weisz and Rachel McAdams as two women who grew up Orthodox, struggling with their love for each other. And also it's about lots of other things. All right, so should we get going with our first segment? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, Mimi, this was your uh, this was your request that we talk about this, so I'm going to make you uh, get us going. All right. Um, yeah. So, as Tamar said, this piece was published in the Washington Post, written by Carrie Purcell, published on March 29th. Um, I initially read some of the responses, which were very swift in coming um, about basically from from a lot of Jewish publications, other places to Twitter had a field day with it. Um, But it was only later that I actually read Purcell's article or op-ed. And I wanted to talk about it because to me, I actually thought it was bringing up really a valid experience and point. So a little note about myself, I have dated men who grew up more religious than I did. And in some ways I was their Jewish rebellion because I didn't have the same background that they did. And I actually feel sort of similarly to Carrie Purcell. It was like, I'm done with that. I'm done with dating somebody where we are compatible religiously as we are now, but it turns out that what you really want is somebody who's more who grew up more from than than I did and can like do the thing with your parents. So I'm done with it and it's sort of frankly insulting that these boys, I call them boys, like don't know what they want going into a relationship. Um and I after reading Purcell's article, I felt not article, op-ed, I keep saying that, but I felt like she's describing a very valid experience. Um, Granted, she makes some big generalizations from her sample size of two, um, but I think it's something worth talking about. What do you guys think? You know, I think, okay, I think we can get to the question of whether this is a valid experience that exists in the world that is worth talking about. But I think before we get there, Carrie Purcell's experience is, uh, I had bigger problems with the op-ed than with the idea that this, this phenomenon might exist. She accuses these guys of not knowing what they want and saying that religion doesn't matter to them in their relationship and then belatedly realizing that actually what they really want is a nice Jewish girl and she gets kicked to the curb and she experiences that as though it is all their problem. Um, 
Well, at the same time, she sort of airily says that she's Christian in the most vague way, but clearly she's a very regular churchgoer and like that celebrating, you know, Christmas in a specific way is important to her and all these things. And like, she seems to think that her sort of bland form of white Christianity is the default that everybody should totally be fine with. And that like yes. these Jewish men are this weird aberration that, you know, if like, if, if they can't abide themselves to the, the white bread American default, that is me and my regular church attendance, then what's wrong with them? And it seemed to me that if I were this woman's boyfriend, I would think, why are you so interested in an interfaith relationship when you seem more interested in your, in your Christianity than I ever was in my Judaism? And then she goes and says, like, in unrelated relationship conversations, these men would bring up that I wasn't Jewish, which maybe they were unrelated or maybe you're missing something important um, and not understanding key differences in the way that you view these relationship issues that may actually be born of different cultures. She placed this entirely on them and she offered literally zero evidence that dating her was an act of rebellion as opposed to a mistake in dating someone that was not compatible with each other and then they went on to more compatible relationships. There's just no evidence of rebellion against anything. Plus she uses a nice little paragraph to drop in like a very subtle hint about how Jewish men find her hot and also at the end there's like like this attempt to be like and i'm going to create a branded cocktail called jewish man's rebellion and it's going to have bacon in it. and i'm like get over yourself why is this experience worthy of column inches in the washington post all of okay, that i think it's i think it's worthy because a lot of women experience this I really think it's true. A lot of women and men. I have but gay do you think Christian this is friends like a who Jewish thing more than it's a like thing that happens between in relationships between men and women. Like this woman experienced it with Jewish men, with two Jewish men. You experienced it with let's say two, two. other <laughs> Jewish men. That makes the <laughs> sum total of four Jewish men making up the data set here. Like I have also experienced this with non-Jewish men who, like, thought that something was important to them and then were like, actually, this other thing is important to me. Like, that's a thing. It's And frankly, like, it's a thing with men. It's also a thing with women. Like, there are plenty okay. of women who, like, start dating someone, think something is, like, not that important to them. And then six months in, they're like, I mean, essentially, that's what happened with Carrie Purcell, right? She was, like, dating someone. She thought that religion was not that important to her weirdly since she seems to go to church regularly and then she discovered it is important to me <laughs> like this isn't this I understand that it is frustrating to be in that situation I've been in the situation where it's like somebody claims that something is fine with them and then it turns out it's not fine with them that's annoying but that that's the annoying thing the Jewish thing is not the you know like it's not the it's it's one of a million different ways that this can go. So you so you doubt the rebellion piece in the same way it, that it's not about an act of rebellion choosing to date Carrie Purcell. It's just about like I chose to date this person and it turns out we're not that compatible. Yeah, I chose to date this person because I knew that that we had this difference, but I figured it wasn't important. And then after after experiencing it for a few months, I was like, oh, there's a reason that I don't do that usually. I guess I'm not going to do it now. And then you break up. Like, that's called dating. It's not like an innovation <laughs> that Carrie Purcell experienced. I guess, 
I it guess feels me, yucky when it's centered around religion, but it feels yucky if it's centered around anything else. Like it could be somebody who was like, oh, I thought that I wanted somebody who was like really going to go with me on my like backpacking trips. But then it turns out that actually I just like backpacking alone and I don't need somebody who wants to go backpacking with me. What I need somebody is somebody who's like, Willing okay. to spend their Sundays doing nothing with me. Like, but the, these but things the don't need to be about religion. Right. But the difference there is that there's not, you, you aren't raised backpacking and constantly, maybe not constantly, but there is a conversation in the backpacking community about what it means to date somebody who's into backpacking or isn't. <laughs> these, like, the thing about growing up as a Jewish man in some way connected to Judaism is that there are conversations about interdating, intermarriage, what it means, why it might be important to you to have a wife who's Jewish. And the fact that these guys don't seem to have given any thought to what's important to them in choosing to have a relationship with somebody is infuriating because there are actually many opportunities to have that conversation and to to think about that. You know, it's interesting to me, she references several times in her piece, a book called Till Faith Do Us Part by Naomi Schaefer Riley. Um, which I actually have read. I haven't read it in a few years, but I do have that book. Um, and she gives statistics from um, from Naomi Schaefer Riley's research and from surveys that she's done, um, saying that Jews are the most intermarried uh, religious group in America. Um, but she also talks about what counts as an intermarriage. So something that counts as an intermarriage is a marriage between somebody of no particular religion and a religion, between mainline Protestants and evangelical Christians that counts, um, you know, or between Catholic or Orthodox Christians and people of other Christian denominations, as well as between more discrete separate religions entirely. And Mimi, one thing that you're sort of calling out is that Marrying another Jew of a very different background is a form of intermarriage um, in terms of trying to blend uh, like backgrounds and senses of what's important and what's negotiable and what's non-negotiable. Um, and that's not something that this research would credit as an important phenomenon. Um, it happens to be that like in my social circle life experience, there isn't, a, there isn't a lot of intermarriage and interdating. And I didn't hear a lot about intermarriage and interdating growing up because I was in such a, it's totally assumed that everybody will marry Jewish kind of uh, sphere. Um, and so I've been exposed to a lot more differential kinds of Judaism coming together and attempting to blend a household. Um, so it's interesting to me that as somebody who was raised with a strong Jewish identity, albeit a different one than these guys that you were dating, that this feels so resonant to you. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I, to me, it seems very, um, I guess I, I, I think it's really important and uh, I should credit my friend Rebecca Ennin for pointing this out on my Facebook page. It seems very important, like straight cis men need to do some work before they go out and like figure out their baggage on women. Um, and, and to me, that's what this is actually about. It's like you, you can actually determine who it's important, who you want to date, what sort of cultural values you have coming into a relationship before being in that relationship. And maybe that's something that you should do. Yeah, but that's true for everyone. 
I mean, it's I, it's true for Jewish men for sure, but it's not like not true for non-Jewish men. For sure. And and I think there are some communities in which there is ample opportunity to do that work and it makes it to me more insulting when the men in those communities don't think about it, haven't thought about it or have thought that they're immune to whatever whatever outside pressures exist. Okay, so your point is that this is uniquely uniquely offensive within the Jewish world because there are so many conversations about the value of intramarriage or the implications of intermarriage, that this is something that the guys should have given some thought in particular, more so than other things that they might be hashing through in their relationships? Sure. Yeah, I do. I think that, like, we run in circles where these conversations are having a lot, but there's plenty of people who grow up, like, you know, 90 to 95% secular Jewish, where, like, conversations about Jewish continuity are just, like, not had. And not important to them. And then they discover when they date (laughs) in their 20s that actually, like, their mom really would prefer that they date somebody Jewish and is kind of going to make it known. And then, you know, either they go that way or they don't. But, like, I don't, I'm not sure that as many people are talking about the, like, this stuff as we think. Um... And anyways, I'm just like, I'm not willing to call this a trend based on this one woman's two experiences and say, even if you had five experiences like that, Mimi, which please God, you didn't. Like, (laughs) that's not enough to make a trend. And like, I, this is like one of my pet peeves as a writer is like a trend piece where it's like one person did a thing and then it's like suddenly everybody's writing about it as if like this is a thing and it's like not not really like we've just now made it a thing but why you know it's not really a thing millennials eating tide pods just saying (laughs) (laughs) also apparently millennials eating ramen out of toilets not a thing just one girl (laughs) she didn't even do it um all right i will concede that this might not be a thing but actually, no, I think it is a thing. It is a thing that Jewish men are that I don't know. It is a thing that the women in intradating for no, not even that. I guess it's just a thing that like intradating can be really excruciating for both members. And to me, it's important that you have done some thinking about it before dragging some uh, some other person through this excruciating ordeal. Absolutely. But don't you feel like in the case of this article, like maybe these guys should have done it, but clearly this woman should have done it too. Like she's acting like, well, they had never thought about it before when clearly she hadn't thought about it before or she'd thought about it as if like as if like Zahava said, like her experience was the default and their experience was an aberration. And it's like, well, if you think about things that way, then if you don't end up with somebody who has your same default, of course, you're going to be dissatisfied. Right. No, I think it, it's. Uh, yeah, I think it's something um it was surprising to me that Carrie Purcell goes to church regularly and still found herself in these relationships thinking that interdating is like 
not a big deal to me. I'm totally fine with it. I'm just doing my thing on Sunday and you're the crazy one. Um, I guess I just happen to know a lot of like non-religious, not totally like no religion, secular women who try dating Jewish men. And then suddenly they're like, why is he so upset when I say I don't want to send my kid to Jewish summer camp? I thought he knew that that's who I am. And he didn't know that that's something, I, I don't know. I, it's it's just important stuff for you to figure out. Hopefully not experimenting on this other person in the relationship. I'll say a major theme in the book Till Faith Do Us Part is how much these relationships get postponed until children come into the relationship. Um, the like- You mean these issues get postponed? Yeah, that that these, um, that the, I don't know what I said, sorry. But, but yeah, that the, the important discussions um, get postponed until there are children. Um, that, you know, the two of them as young professionals, they're totally fine. But when they think about what it means to raise a child, they fall back on paradigms that they've seen about raising children and the values and environments that were emphasized in their upbringing. And that's their sense of what it means to raise a child. And then all of a sudden, these conflicts come come into view. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting that like, her conclusion in that book is that Jews are the most intermarried religious group. Um, interestingly, the other end of the spectrum is Mormons. Um, and I was once telling somebody, having read this book, it's like, oh, well, I was just reading this book that says that Jews are the most intermarried religious group in America. And they were like, well, of course, that has to be true. We're so small um, that, like, the dating pool is so much smaller for us within, it makes sense that we would go without. And I said, well, the other end of the spectrum with the least intermarriage is Mormons. And they were like backpedaling because there aren't that many Mormons. <laughs> They're like, oh, but that makes sense too because small communities become very insular and people, and I was like, okay, you can't really have this both ways. <laughs> you can't have it both ways. Um, well, Mormons aren't that small though. I, I suppose they recruit and we don't. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, in the in the scheme of of American religions, Mormonism is not like, you know, the, sweeping the nation in the same way. But regardless, I mean, I don't know. In the same way as Judaism? <laughs> no, in the, in the same way as like, like white bread Protestantism, I suppose. Um, I've, I've described Christianity as white bread twice already, and I hereby apologize. <laughs> but in the meantime, I... I I think the real question for me, Mimi, is this notion of, it's different to say somebody hasn't thought through their issues than to latch onto this mo notion of rebellion. Like, to me, Carrie Purcell didn't provide any evidence that that was what was going on in her, her case, but that seemed to resonate with you as something that you feel was like a real factor in some of these relationships. Well, I mean, I, I think for me, the rebellion was not me. It was their what what their Jewishness meant in that moment. Um, and I happened to be meeting them in that moment of no longer being from, for example. Um, so I was maybe an extension of the rebellion. Um, and actually maybe the hardest part because you introduce your girlfriend to your family. You, well, no, these guys were talking with their parents about their Shabbat and Kashrut stuff. Um, but it's not, to me, it's not dating as rebellion. It's rebellion plus dating leads to torturous relationship. 
That that I can buy. But I guess there's another piece, which I was, I I also didn't buy into. The backlash is, you know, a lot of people are writing about how this was such an anti-Semitic op-ed and like, you know, trashing the the Washington Post for letting this be published. Um, what did you guys think about that? Does this strike you as part of the rising tide of anti-Semitism? I don't think it's like the same as like actual Nazis actually marching. <laughs> but I also do think that like, if you're an editor, you your job is to be careful about this kind of thing. Uh, and you like, this is an article about how, like, it sucks to date Jewish men because they say they want you, but they really don't. Like, what? <laughs> like, do you really want to publish that? I mean, you do if your job is just to get clicks. But, like, it it's a... And the editor was... It turned out to be Jewish. Like, it it was a huge lapse in judgment that was, I thought, like, pretty appalling. I think... I find I have written and I have enjoyed many personal essays, but I think that, like, we're in this moment where everybody thinks that, like, everything that happens to them might be, like, really poignant to everyone else and maybe should be, like, something that's published for other people to read about on the internet. And it's, like, just maybe not. Like, you got to check yourself before you wreck yourself with these personal essays because they can go a bad way. And I, I mean, I just think like writers have a responsibility to do this and it's not like, sometimes it's hard because you're like, oh, I really want to write about this, but I'm worried I might write about it in a way that will make me seem like a total idiot. And then I, you know, like I wrote, um, an article about race, um, uh, about a month ago and I was so like, my whole thinking was just like, I want to write about this but I don't want to be that girl on the internet who was an idiot and wrote something stupid about race. And so like, there are ways to ensure that that doesn't happen to you. Like you can pay someone who is of the group that you're writing about and be like, hey, can you read this and tell me if this sets off red flags? You can make sure that somebody like that edits the piece. I mean, in this case, there was a Jewish person editing it and she just did a bad job. So I don't know what to say about that, but like, there are steps you can take to protect yourself from like accidentally falling into a mine and this person didn't take them um slash didn't didn't have someone who helped her think deeply about the consequences of writing something like this but but I don't think it's the same as like wearing a Nazi armband, but I do think like it's not a good look and it's not a good look in a time where like there are people wearing Nazi armbands. So like, you know, veer away. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess I felt like some of the pieces written in response were just ridiculous. Like, it, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that I, the I'm... response was part of the response was like, my experience makes me embrace stereotypes about Jewish people. So that deserves a platform, right? That's the thing that, that uh, comes most close to, to the accusation of anti-Semitism. People were especially, I think, upset about the uh, very stereotypical story about the overbearing Jewish mother that was dropped in for no apparent reason in the middle of the story, um, in the middle of the op-ed. But I, I think that it's not 
I mean, the, the other thrust in the response was, Jewish men keep breaking up with me. It, it, it must be their problem. And just sort of making fun of her as a clueless individual. Um, right. Which is not the same thing as making, you know, calling her out as an anti-Semite. I think that the, the truth is, you know, somewhere, somewhere in between those things closer to clueless than anti-Semite. Right. Agreed. Well, Carrie Purcell, best of luck, girlfriend. <laughs> That's how I, I feel. I find a very nice Protestant. Um, I just, yeah. I can't wait for the, like, follow-up piece in the New York Times in, like, five years when she's happily married to a Jewish man. (laughs) Seriously, a a Jewish man who's, like, ready for a relationship with a Christian woman. Like, good on you. Get that, girl. That's how I, yeah. (laughs) Although I do, I I do wonder if there are any Jewish men who are going to be willing to, uh, date her after she apparently after she writes something like this most jewish men i think would do wisely to stay away all right let's move along to our second segment about which i have much to say so our second segment um is uh sorry our second segment is about the film Disobedience, which is directed by Sebastian Lelio and written by Lelio and Rebecca Lankowitz. It is based on the novel, um, which is also called Disobedience by Naomi Alderman, which I have endorsed before on this podcast. And it stars Rachel Weiss, Rachel McAdams, and Alessandro Nivola um, as, well, the film is about <coughs> um, Ronit Krushka, a photographer who lives in New York. She grew up Orthodox in London and Hendon. She receives a call that her father, who she was estranged from has and was a big rabbi in the community, has died. And so she returns to London, where she meets up with her two close friends from childhood, David and Esty, and they have since gotten married. So Esty and Ronit had a romantic relationship when they were teens, which was part of the reason that Ronit left the community to begin with. Uh, when she comes back, all three of them have to wrestle with all of the feelings. Um, so, Zahava, since you, before we started recording, you you started saying some things. So I'm curious what you thought of this, of this film. Yeah, I mean, what I said was I think I liked it more than you did because you were giving off uh, negative vibes. Um, I didn't love this movie. I think I liked it well enough. Um, I think... By far the best thing about it is Alessandro Nivola, who plays uh, David. He is fantastic, and I was astonished to learn that he isn't actually Jewish. Um, when watching this movie, he just it was so natural. I mean, the thing that's always the giveaway with non-Orthodox men playing Orthodox men is that they don't know where to put their kippah. It's always in the slightly wrong spot on their head. Um, <laughs> and it just felt like, oh, yeah, that's a firm guy. Like... It just felt very easy and natural um, in his performance, more so than with either Rachel McAdams or Rachel Weiss, who each um, neither has to do a whole lot of out loud, you know, saying of Hebrew things. But in each instance, there's an awkward mispronunciation, not quite rightness about when they do have to do those things. Um, and he does a great job of it. But on the whole, and uh I, I think, Tamar, you disagree with this. I actually think it does a pretty good job of portraying orthodoxy. Um, there are some things about it that are 
incorrect, but they seem incorrect for like necessary and story first reasons. Um, so for instance, David is teaching a class of yeshiva boys who are inexplicably studying Shir Hashirim, the Song of Solomon, which would never in a million years happen. Um, I mean, it might happen, but it certainly would not happen in English. <laughs> it would not happen in English. Yeah. And it, that also, there are moments where people who would normally be using either a mix of Hebrew and English or just speaking in like a traditional terminology are speaking in English for the sake of avoiding too many subtitles, I assume. Um, but setting those things aside, I feel like the setting, the uh, community atmosphere, the vibe in the shul in which they, in, in, in which you see them periodically, the, it does, it does feel fairly, fairly authentic to me. And aesthetically it feels right. Like the art direction of this movie feels right. The little touches, the like the shadows that everybody's wearing feel like the right wigs and the outfits that they're wearing feel like the right kind of outfits. And the fact that like the brand, like the fact that they have Geffen brand salt on their shelf instead of like Morton feels right because they bought it in the kosher store. Like the, there's a tremendous attention to detail in constructing the Orthodox world in which they live that I felt like because of that attention to detail, the inauthenticities like the excessive English or like learning Shir Hashirim in the Yeshiva Boys class um, were purposeful and forgivable in that larger context of authenticity. That's funny. There were two things that stuck out to me, and I, full disclosure, didn't finish the film, but two things stuck out to me at the beginning. I was like, nope, not relate relatable. Um, first of all, the girls in the school where Esty, the Rachel McAdams um, character, teaches, were singing Yigdal, which to me is like, that doesn't seem no, like a daytime. No, they were singing Adon Olam. Oh, they were singing Adon Olam. But even so, I don't know. I thought that was weird. Um, it was weird. And then... It was mostly weird because they were standing up. <laughs> which yeah, like one does not do when saying Adon Olam. And that then they finished point. and all sat down, and I was like, What? That's not the end of week morn of weekday morning davening, but right, yeah. But also, there were many times when somebody in the community would say like, "Oh, how are you?" and they would just say, "Oh, I'm fine," or "Oh, you know, I'm doing okay." I'm like, I think they probably would have said something like "Thank God" or "Baruch Hashem," but that's a small detail. Did you did you feel like maybe they were more convincing as Jews and less convincing as women attracted to women? I didn't feel um, uh, there was an awkwardness between the two Rachels. I felt yeah. I I was really excited to see this film because I liked the book and I heard that the film was really good. And I was just like, as I was watching, I was like, "What is this?" There was like, I did not find the orthodoxy to be convincing at all. Like, I just found it so distracting how bad they were um, at it. At one point. <laughs> The moment where I was really like, who was in charge of this? There was like a bunch of guys standing around wearing black hats. And one of the black hats was like essentially a cowboy hat. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what is happening here? Nobody acted to me in a way that felt like how people act in like Orthodox. I mean, they also didn't really act very British, but they like really didn't act like from British people in my experience, and I haven't spent like tons of time in from Hendon, but I have spent like, I don't know, four or five Shabbatot there in my life. I feel like I know generally the vibe and it's not, it did not feel genuine to me. Um, 
like the like lack of Hebrew and stuff really stuck out to me. Like I just think there are ways to do that that would have added to the film instead of like it would build a more of a sense of like this is a community that's like actually very insular and without doing that it doesn't it didn't feel that way to me um it also seemed just like the the premise of the movie is basically that this woman who grew up in this community has left the community and had no contact with it for it's unclear how many years which even that didn't i basically don't buy that in like this moment in time like she might have left but like people who are like who grow up really from and aren't from anymore generally do have a relationship with their family and even if even if she really was totally estranged like she grew up in that community when she shows up people would she would know how to act like there's a bunch of situations where she seems like oh I don't know what to do which is like what are you talking about you were in this community for like 17 or 18 years at least you know what to do here and um or people seem to like not know who she is which also doesn't make any sense like she grew up in that community everybody should be like oh that's the rabbi's daughter so like all that seemed really weird and then in the beginning, it seems like she has all this ten- sexual tension with David and essentially none <laughs> with her lover, Rachel McAdams, which I was like, I don't know. That, I, that I definitely felt like their relationship didn't really make that much sense to me. Um, and also, like, the book that it was based on came out in 2006. And if you imagine that Naomi Alderman was writing this story, like, in, say, 2004... Like, in 2004, a relationship between two women in a from community, like, totally plausible that one of those women would be like, I have to leave and, like, totally leave the from world because this is, like, totally not an okay thing. But honestly, like, in 2018, I actually think that would just not, like, it would be very difficult, but, like, we're just at a different place, even, I think, in orthodox communities around LGBT issues than we were, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. And I just felt like it was, it seemed not aware of that um, in a way that was like distracting to me. I also, (laughs) yeah, sorry, I'll stop there. I I guess I'm curious what, what the book had to, how the book portrayed her coming home and her, being sort of not excommunicated, but her needing to totally cut ties from the community. The movie does sort of not fully explain it. I mean, maybe by maybe by two thirds of the way through, you infer that she left because she had the sexual relationship with Esty and couldn't make it work in the community. But that's never particularly articulated. And you also never really get a very clear sense of what the friendship between the three of them was really like in their youth, which in and of itself does not feel fully plausible that these two good from girls would have had such a close personal friendship with this one guy um, in, in such in, in a right wing Orthodox community feels implausible to begin with. Um, And so it feels like there should be an understanding. There should be more of an explanation um, of what preceded Ronit leaving the community. Yeah, exactly. And there is more of that in the book. I mean, I read the book when it came out and I haven't read it recently, but I did like take it off the shelf today and read little bits of it. And the thing that I responded to when I read it 
and that I still think is really great about it is it actually does a great job of portraying like what it's like to be in the orthodox world and like what's great about it and what can be stifling about it um and I just felt like especially in light of our last discussion where we talked about books of people leaving orthodoxy like this (laughs) I thought that like this movie would show like how that was hard but it didn't because it just like didn't really show what it's like to be a part of the community and why that might like be attractive to people even if they're feeling feelings that might pull them away from it um and I don't know (laughs) that that was just really um disappointing to me because I feel like it would be nice to see that there are like there's a great documentary um on Netflix I'm now forgetting the name of it about like people leaving one of us one of us um about people leaving like Haredi communities and um it's it's really good and poignant but it's about people who are like I'm fed up I don't like this I need to get out and often because of like terrible things that happen to them which is fine like I want people who want to leave to be able to leave but you can't fully understand how hard it is and why it's hard if you can't also say, like, this is what is good about it. This is why people stay, because it provides you with this great community. It feels good. It's comfortable. Like, these are the things that people like. If you just portray it as, like, a totally terrible, meaningless thing, then, like, it doesn't make sense why everyone doesn't leave. And there's a reason everyone doesn't leave. People like it. Um, and I just felt like this movie didn't really convey the meaning within these communities and like why people are there like why would this woman have stayed in this in this marriage if she really had feelings for another woman like the this movie doesn't really explain doesn't really get to that it's just like it was hard but like but what was hard about it (laughs) um I just thought that was super weird and the I mean also as a person who who has had a parent die like I thought the the like thing that sets off this whole story is that her father died and then like the story only the movie only like very slightly kind of gestures towards that at random moments but like her father died she would be grieving the community would be dealing with it in a different way than they are dealing with it in this movie I think um and and like also there's essentially no discussion of her mother which is like if your mother died when you're a child and then your father just died, that would make you think a lot about your mother. Like, it's just, the whole thing was super weird to me. It just felt like totally not genuine and was so, felt like such a lost opportunity. Um, because I, I do think the book is actually really good and does a really great job at looking at these issues. And I just felt like this movie went like, I, we should say there's some really beautiful shots in this film. Um, and there was maybe I've maybe there were some lingering like, oh, people staring at each other, which is, I don't know, too many of that. But um, the cinematography of it was really great, especially being about a woman who's a photographer and has, you know, some sort of eye for setting up a good shot. I thought it was a beautifully like the visuals of it were beautiful. But can we talk about the lesbian sex scene for a minute? I'm, yes, we can. Sure. <laughs> First of all, I've always wanted to do this with Zahava, so here we go. <laughs> um, like, 
that scene was like the most like lesbian sex as seen by a man scene that I have ever <laughs> I mean not that I've seen that many lesbian sex scenes but it was just like this was not this was this was a hundred percent male gaze lesbian sex um and <laughs> the thing that really pissed me off about it is like they're in a hotel room they're four feet away from the bed, but they have this, like, long, elaborate sex scene not on the bed. Come on! <laughs> that was not upsetting to me in the slightest. That's not my problem with Oh, my it. God. It's like when people have sex with their bras on in movies. I'm always like, no one does that. <laughs> it's in their contracts. Come on. <laughs> so I will say, though, uh, I mean, so... Two things. I think you do get the sense of the of the sex being very like, I don't know that passionate is the right word, very fervent. Um, and that it winds up being like very intense and very graphic without actually showing a lot of skin, which I think is very interesting. Like this is very graphic sex that takes place largely with panties on, um, which is interesting in and of itself. And there is this sense, you know, when you talk about through the through the lens of the male gaze, it's very interesting that this movie does not linger on any on any naked female form, really. I mean, I this is a movie about orthodoxy in which many boobs are seen. Not as many as could have been. Uh, yeah, I really don't think in it's sex that many scene, boobs. There's not that much boob. I, I think yeah, but there's boobs in other times for like no reason. I think it skims past pretty quickly, but I actually don't think it's no reason. I think that this is this is actually like a fairly symbolic thing because coverage and uncoverage is a very important marker of women's signaling and membership in right-wing orthodoxy that like in the same way that wearing or not wearing her wig is important um, for, for Estee's character and her placement in the, in the orthodox community throughout the movie. And in like a moment of personal crisis when she's trying to figure things out, she's wearing a beret, which I, I don't mean to make too much of that. Her hair is all covered, but it, she is setting aside the signal of like polish and you don't see any other women in the community not wearing a wig ever. And, you know, and there is also an important scene, like, and when she's interacting with her husband and like, uh, having this sort of like performative and dutiful sex life, what does that look like? And she's like, I'm going to strip completely naked, get under the, get under the covers and wait for you to be ready. But she doesn't do that during the one, like, literally and figuratively climactic scene, um, in which they're just overwhelmed by passion in this hotel room where the two women are overwhelmed by passion in the, this hotel room. Like, she doesn't even have time to, like, you know, take off half her clothes. And the fact that there's, like, a very erotic, this is absurd for me to say it out loud, but it is true, a very erotic unsnapping of the crotch of the bodysuit, right, that <laughs> Esty is wearing, yeah. which is the firmest thing of all time, that, like, you really see in a very authentic way all of the layers, Right. She's like, oh, I'm wearing the, the tights and the bodysuit and the skirt. And like the bodysuit is also the shell for underneath my um, underneath my top so that the, my neckline is all the way up and my, you know, and my sleeves are all the way covered. And like. It is not lingerie. It is not anything approaching sexualized clothing. 
and like the shedding of these layers of modesty in this very intentional and specific way is very interesting. I will say though, one of the reviews starts out with, let me just say this, this is a movie in which Rachel Weisz spits into Rachel McAdams' mouth. I just feel like we that should was... get that out of the way. Okay, yeah. now I've said it, yeah. moving forward. And like, that is a startling incident. <laughs> <laughs> And I have to say, like, I was like, when I saw that in the review, I was like, well, I assume they, like, really sell it. Otherwise, why would this be in that movie? But, like, when it happened, I was like, why? Why? Who thinks that is sexy? What is happening here? I Googled it, is, it actually. It I was weird. like, do people have this fetish? Is that a thing that people do? <laughs> I'm sure some people do, but it's yes. super weird. Don't Google There's too far. nothing sexy about it in that moment. To me. I... Yeah, I, I think my favorite character was David, the Estes husband and the, the male friend. I thought he was really interesting. I I felt like he married Esty out of friendship to Esty, some sense of needing to like save her from ridicule in the community and love for the Rav. Um, and... He seemed genuinely, like, welcoming when Ronit came back to the community. Yeah, I thought he was great. Yeah, I thought he was really interesting, but kind of, they didn't do enough with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like an unexplored avenue of this movie is the possibility that actually both Esty and David were in love with Ronit in their youth. Um, Yeah. And you, you get the sense of the, like, the really intimate, almost, but not quite touching, um you know, there's a lot of physical proximity between David and Roni, you know, like the moment where he cups his hand behind her cigarette so that she can light it without the wind blowing it out. Like there's a physical closeness that that creates without any actual touching um, that in and of itself feels taboo without quite breaking the taboo. Um, and I, I think there, there was more there than the movie explored. And that's really to the credit of Alessandro Nivola's performance. Should people see it? What do you think? I think no. <laughs> but I think yes. It's coming to Boston. I'll suggest it to friends. I wouldn't see it for a story about leaving orthodoxy. Like, I think that this movie, the phrase that came to mind is that this movie is very hermetically sealed. Like, it's this very close, airless thing that's happening between these three people and that the events around them and the community around them are sort of devices for what's happening between these three people. Um, and it does an okay job at that. Um, but don't see it to explore LGBT issues in the Orthodox community. You'll be left wanting. I will say I totally recommend the book. Like if this review, if this movie seems like probably not for you, uh, you probably, I, you might really like the book still. So I would check out the book if you are like slightly intrigued and, or if it's like not coming to your city or whatever. All right. Well, um, it comes out on, uh, April 28th. So, uh, if you feel like seeing it, look for it after that. All right. Should we move on to endorsements? Yeah. Yes. All right, Mimi, what do you got? All right. So guys, in my, um, you know, trying to figure out what I, what is meaningful um, ritual for me and for Daniel, 
Um, and in my constant push for Daniel to look more from, we have gotten really into the Omer and the Omer beard. So <laughs> my husband, um, my husband has a beard and, um, I always want him to let it grow longer, but he thinks it makes him look too scruffy. So the deal was that as long as we, I, and I'm in charge of remembering to count the Omer, Daniel will continue to grow his beard. So what are we at? It's about to be day 20. Um, it's a lot, it's really easy this year because at least for now, the day lines up with the date in April. There's also, a decent app called Omer Count. I'm sure there are many, but I will link to Omer Count because I enjoy it and it helps me keep track and it even reminds me when it's time to count the Omer. Um, and it's a great excuse to see how long this beard will go. Um, and yeah. And also I will say it's actually like a really meaningful ritual that at some point in the night, I'm like, oh my gosh, let's count the Omer. And we sit together and we say the blessing together and we say what day it is. Um, and it's a nice like pause for the two of us. So yeah, I'm pro Omer, it turns out. Nice. That is so sweet. Yeah. Uh, all right. So wait, your endorsement is Omer Beards or the Omer Counting app? Why not both? Or just your husband looking <laughs> sexy? No, no. I, I think Omer Beards. I think we should all, every beard growing person, explore. See how, see what it looks like. Awesome. Just wanted to get clarity there. I haven't been shaving my legs out of solidarity. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay, Zahava, what about you? Okay, so um, we are recording this in between two Sundays on which I am seeing part one and part two of the Angels in America revival on Broadway. Um, oh, I'm so jealous. So, wow. um, but speaking from my position of New York area privilege, I'm not going to recommend the Broadway production because that seems unfair. Um, but... Have you guys uh, experienced Angels in America in any of its forms, reading the play or seeing it performed or watching the HBO miniseries at any point? HBO. Mm -hmm. I saw the HBO and also when I was in college, my University of Iowa put on a production of it and I was hired to help teach them how to say the Kaddish uh, in an accurate way. (laughs) An extremely valuable thing. Um, for what it's worth, the the actress who has to say the Kale Mullet in part one did not do a fantastic job on Broadway. But anyway, but what I want to endorse, um, so this is sort of because of a, a complex uh, confluence of things. But so the play opens with a monologue um, by a very minor character named Rabbi Isidore Chemowitz. Um, and he is doing a funeral, the funeral of the grandmother of one of the main characters. Um, and in the HBO miniseries version of this, the rabbi is played completely unrecognizably and under a fake beard by Meryl Streep. It is absolutely worth looking up the YouTube clip of her doing this monologue. I heartily recommend it. Um, in you know, but the character is uh, a, an immigrant himself, and he has a heavy Yiddish accent, and he gives this eulogy that is less about. Um, less about the individual deceased woman than it is about her as a member of a generation. It happens to be that I saw part one uh, this past Sunday, which was the Sunday after Yom HaShoah, 
Um, and it also happens to be uh, that since then, uh, actually this morning, one of the last Holocaust survivors in my family passed away. Um, and I've been thinking about the confluence of all of these things. And so what I actually want to endorse is this monologue, and I'm going to read a part of it. So the rabbi says, um, after saying that he doesn't actually know her personally, he says, so I do not know her, and yet I know her. She was not a person, but a whole kind of person. The ones who crossed the ocean, who brought with us to America, the villages of Russia and Lithuania, and Lithuania, and how we struggled and how we fought for the family, for the Jewish home, so that you would not grow up here in this strange place, in this melting pot where nothing melted. Descendants of this immigrant woman, you do not grow up in America. You and your children and their children with the Goyesha names, you do not live in America. No such place exists. Your clay is the clay of some Litvak shtetl, your heir, the heir of the shtepas, because she carried the old world on her back, across the ocean, in a boat, and she put it down on Grand Concourse Avenue, or in Flatbush, and she worked that earth into your bones, and you pass it to your children, this ancient, ancient culture and home. You can never make that crossing that she made, for such great voyages in this world do not anymore exist, but every day of your lives, the miles that voyage, between that place and this one you cross every day. You understand me? In you that journey is. It's a fantastic speech. It's a great opener and a real agenda setting thing for the play. Um, I do recommend the Meryl Streep rendition of it um, and we'll link to that in the show page if you have a chance in New York to see this performance. I really do recommend it. Um, but if you have not encountered Angels in America in one of its forms, track down the miniseries, find a performance, read the play. I strongly recommend actually just reading the play. Um, it's fantastic. And Jewish, an interesting and sort of uh, funhouse mirror, weirdly reflected ways. Um, and so I, I was just, that, that speech was resonating for me in a different way this week. Cool. I don't have anything that profound, um, but I do want to recommend two books. So one is related to disobedience. There's um, another book about a lesbian who grew up Orthodox. Well, I'm not sure if she grew up Orthodox. She grew up in the same area in London. Um, and But it's from like the early 90s. It's called The Dyke and the Dybbuk, and it's by a woman named Ellen Galford. Um, and I really liked it. I read it like many years ago at this point, but I think it's worth um, tracking down if if you're interested in this in this experience. It's like extremely extremely different from. It's more kind of a comic novel, um, but I it's it's really fun. And watching this made me <laughs> wish that I was reading The Dyke and the Dybbuk instead because I was not enjoying disobedience. Um, and I also I, I have been doing a lot of baking lately because Pesach is over and so my life is better. And um, so I wanted to recommend a cookbook that I have gotten and have found really useful. I do a ton of baking and I feel like very well versed as a baker, but uh, The Modern Jewish Baker um, by Shannon Sarna is a great cookbook with really reliable recipes. I have been using her challah recipe for the past couple of weeks and it's really good. And I like the one that I've been using forever, but this is also really excellent. And she has like a ton of different babka recipes with different fillings. And 
Um, she like has bagel recipes, which like there's no universe in which I'm ever going to make my own bagels. But if that's your thing, she will guide you through it. Um, so yeah, I totally recommend it. It's a great cookbook and it crucially like beautiful, beautiful pictures and very clear instructions. So, uh, definitely worth buying or getting from your library. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts and let us know also what you would like us to talk about on a future episode. Uh, you could leave a comment um, on a post on our website, jpmedia.co, or you can leave a comment on our Facebook page. You should search for Jewish Public Media. Um, you can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co. And that's really useful. It shows support for our show and ensures that we're able to keep bringing you this podcast every month. All right. Bye, Mimi. Bye. Bye, Zahava. Good night, guys. See you next month.